Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Soccer 101, the podcast where we tackle the questions about the beautiful game you never knew you had. On this episode, we're talking about TV and its role in the sport. How did the old boo tube help soccer grow? How has its money changed the game? Where will the game on our screens take us in the future? All this and more will be answered by myself, Ryan Bailey, my good friend Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello. And my other good friend, Graham Rutherford. Hello, Graham. Hello. Hello, Graham. Very nice to have you here on Soccer 101. We are talking about soccer on TV. Graham, let's go back, way back to the past, back to when things were black and white and boots were heavy and balls were stitched and shorts were long and so on and so forth. The 90s. The 90s. A little bit further back from the 90s. Let's go about (laughs) 60 or so years back from that. Let's talk about the very start of soccer on TV. Where did it start, Graham? So, the first televised game, technically speaking, and there is a a little bit of uh, Mm. qualification here, but technically speaking, the first televised soccer game was a a BBC experiment in 1937. They broadcast part of a, a, a game that had been specially arranged for the purpose of the test, and that game was between Arsenal and Arsenal Reserves. And uh, it was to to test whether they they could broadcast a a live sporting event. The first nationally broadcast match proper was an an international match between England and Scotland a year later. But even then, the BBC only showed part of the match. They they only had the capability to, to show part of that game. They couldn't show the whole match. The first time a whole match was shown live on television was the 1938 FA Cup final, which was a, a game between Press North End and Huddersfield Town. Town. And even uh, even so, the the number of people inside the stadium, inside Wembley, was far greater than the number of people that were able to watch that game on TV. Because at that time, in 1938, there were only about 10,000 people in the country, in the UK, who owned a television set. And obviously, it's not a given that all of them were actually watching the game at that time, and Wembley at that time could hold over 100,000 people. So it was wow. still very much in a experimental stage at, at that point. And uh, yeah, that's the start of uh, soccer on TV. Yeah, I can remember stories my parents um, telling me about watching the World Cup final in 1966. Even then, television wasn't in every home. Like my mum saying she had to go to like uh, somewhere down the street and everybody on the street was watching on this one TV, um, which all sounds very quaint these days. But I think, Graham, um, if we're going to talk about when soccer sort of really took off, and we're talking from a UK perspective here and perhaps a European yeah. one too, it'll be when colour broadcasts start uh, becoming prevalent maybe the 70s and the 80s when live matches start appearing yeah so I'll, I'll take you slightly further back than that so in the early days of of tv um even the going from the 30s the 40s the 50s up to the 60s in the 30s and 40s it actually wasn't technically possible to to broadcast matches beyond london a lot of the time because that's where the 
the kind of TV signal would come come from, and I, I found that quite interesting. I, I I didn't know that, and even when the technical capabilities improved, it was only the FA Cup finals and international matches that were shown in that type and time period. It wasn't until the 1960s that it you really started to get soccer on TV in in the UK, and we are referenced in the UK a lot because um, that was really where that that growth was happening soccer in general was bigger in the UK at that time but also you had the BBC and things like that and um yeah that tends to be where soccer and TV has its roots is in, in the UK so it wasn't until the 60s that the, the football league permitted games to be broadcast on TV because they were wary that showing games on TV might reduce match day attendances and we all laugh at how outdated that sounds but the 3pm blackout that still exists to this day mm. in the UK still uses that logic as a basis, and the 3pm blackout can be dated back to the 70s, so um, there's still a belief that putting games on TV will affect match day attendance, rightly or wrongly. Um, so looking at the 1960-61 the season, which was when the, the Football League agreed a deal with ITV to show 26 live league games that season, the first league game was a, a match between Blackpool and Bolton Wanderers on 10th September, that's my birthday, in 1960, that was not my birthday, I was not alive <laughs> then. Um, <laughs> The the next planned broadcast was a game involving uh, Spurs and Aston Villa, and it was actually it was actually cancelled the second game because um, basically the Football League demanded a, an increase in the the player appearance payments that the players were getting, and that wasn't in the deal. And ITV pulled out of that game, and they actually pulled out of that deal entirely just two games into the season. So it's fair to say that the the first few years of regular uh, TV soccer broadcasts were. We're pretty fraught. It was all very experimental. Even going up into the into the seventies, um, the first highlights package was shown in nineteen sixty two, and um, when Anglia TV launched Match of the Week, which showed highlights of matches from East Anglia region, so Norwich and Ipswich and those sort of teams, and then Match of the Day, which I guess is the quintessential highlight show. Even to this day, it started in nineteen sixty four. Although I don't think Gary Lineker was presenting it back then and uh, from kind of the mid 60s onwards you start to see soccer on tv becoming a a staple of the of the broadcast schedule you have world cups you have fa cup finals you have big league games on tv and i guess from there that, that takes us all the way up to the the present day Graham, did you did you do much reading about floodlights and their importance in TV broadcasts? Because I thought it was interesting to read about how some of the early ones had to be abandoned halfway through because it got too dark for the broadcast. So I'm wondering <laughs> if you feel like floodlights maybe also factored into the growth of television coverage. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I I hadn't read that, but I guess that's another one of those things where you wouldn't you wouldn't think of it until you actually do it. And obviously the, the technology of the day maybe doesn't have the capability to, to handle uh, floodlights or, or, yeah. or so on or, or, or not handle games without floodlights. So yeah, yeah it's something that you, I, much like the kind of player uh, appearance fees that scuppered that initial ITV deal, the Football League deal, it's something that they probably hadn't thought about until they started putting them on TV. Yeah, there's a game between, I think maybe you found Taylor, a game in October 1946 between Barnet and Wealdstone where the they only broadcast the first 35 minutes because it got too dark <laughs> for the cameras there. Another thing to point up on, Graham, you mentioned how the broadcasts were only in London uh, because of the, the strength of the signal. I can specifically remember in the pre uh, digital television days, there's a big tower in Crystal Palace, um, near Crystal Palace Park, 
the TV tower and you always get better reception if you were nearer that. Yes, I am that old. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, Taylor, the real change, the real revolution in the TV soccer landscape, certainly from a UK perspective, perhaps a, a global perspective going forward, was uh, in the 1990s, the advent of the Premier League. So mm-hmm. Sky TV literally changed soccer. They forced the creation of the Premier League, essentially. Uh, we do forget that the Premier League is a breakaway league. Yep. So back in the early 90s all members of the football league first division the top division in england voted to break away and start a new league the premier league uh with the idea of getting a new um uh, a television deal which sky sports presented and i can remember at the time it was 1992 it all felt very american with all due respect like when they, when the broadcast first started on sky we got monday night football for the first time which is you know a pretty american concept there were cheerleaders at every game and fireworks every broadcast game which they kind of phased out when they realized uh, british people were too dour for that kind of behavior but um that that taylor was the real sort of um sea change in modern history in terms of tv affecting soccer yeah, I mean, I think I think for from a UK perspective, certainly, I think it takes a little bit longer over in the United States over here for it to catch on and for it to have that big of an impact. But yeah, I think the Premier League, the awareness of the money on offer, the potential money on offer, if they are able to kind of spend it the way they want and control it the way they want, I think that does lead to the influx of money that leads to where we are today. Let's take a very quick break, Taylor, and I want to come back and talk about how soccer on TV has changed in the US. And I've been um, acting my age talking about TV broadcast signals. Maybe you can talk about um, watching games on Fox World and on VHS in the middle of the night and so on and so forth. We'll be back very shortly on Soccer 101. Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like having a first aid kit, but not keeping it stocked up. Most of the time, you'll probably be fine. But what if you suddenly get into a horrible accident and there's nothing in your first aid kit to help you stop the bleeding? Uh, In Con Air, I believe he needed a first aid kit for a syringe, and that first aid kit had chicken feet. Nicholas Cage wasn't happy when that happened. You wouldn't be either. So don't let your first aid kit have chicken feed in it. Don't let your connection be unsecure. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, be it at a cafe, a hotel, an airport, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data. And the truth is it doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack somebody. And your data is valuable and vulnerable, so you need to make sure it is secure. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the Internet. Hackers cannot steal your sensitive data. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. And nobody has a billion years to wait around. That just won't work. So that's why ExpressVPN is great. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash soccer. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash soccer. And you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash soccer. Thank you very much to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's show. Soccer 101, welcome back. We are talking about uh, TV and it's uh, the way in which it helped the beautiful game grow. Taylor Rockwell. Yes, sir. Um, the current US TV deal is worth $2.7 billion for the Premier League uh, for NBC Sports. They're getting all 380 matches for that. Um, the current three-season deal is worth $12 billion globally. A little over half of that is domestic. So that's a pretty big piece of the pie that the US is taking from the global cost of the rights there. Could you talk us through a little bit? I came to the US in 2011 when ESPN, I think Fox, had some rights as well. Um, And can you talk talk to us about how soccer has grown and perhaps how you became a Man United fan, how you um, developed your relationship with the game through TV? 
Yeah, I, I think that like the the main one through through TV, the Richmond Kickers have a lot of Man United connections, and that was sort of the the, the foundation for me. But uh, I believe when I was I would have been about like eleven, you could get highlight packages like it was probably match of the day and i just didn't know that's what it was called but you could get that on pbs and so they would show condensed matches on there and one of them was man united and they had destroyed somebody like six to one and i thought yeah that seems like fun uh but that was sort of the way it was you had to find it where you could uh usually i guess looking up like tv guide or something like that and i think it's really indicative when you look at the champions league broadcast history because from 1995 to 2009 it is with espn and then it basically just keeps changing hands because there's so much money on offer but for the longest time it was champions league on espn and if you weren't watching at 245 you were missing that game and then later mm-hmm. on in my like college years you had Fox Soccer Channel, you had Fox Soccer Plus, you had Satanta, but it, it would usually be, as I've said, I think previously, you had to sort of figure out which team was playing on which channel and adjust your schedule accordingly. And the schedule being adjusted is a key point there because pre-DVR, if you didn't see it and you didn't have a VHS recorder or something like that, you were missing that game. And I do think that is a huge part of why soccer starts to catch on in this country is the advent of DVR and the spread of TiVo and things like that. Because if you're on the West coast, like, and you have to work to find the game you want to watch and then it's at 5am or whatever, it's really, really difficult to stay informed and for everybody to be as interested when you have DVR and, and easier access to Premier League, Champions League games. And especially when they're on demand after that, like, I think it just makes it so much easier to watch games that you're not on someone else's clock. So I think that's when you start to see more and more interest in the game over here. I, Tyler, I was Tyler. not aware that Satanta was in the United States. Like they had the channel. I thought that was yep. like a very British or they're actually an Irish channel. Irish, but- yeah. Yeah, Ryan, you remember when they bought Premier League rights and that was like a massive story that someone had taken rights off Sky and not just someone had taken rights off Sky. It was a company that no one had heard of. So I I didn't know that they had had also had a a US channel. Didn't work out great for them, Graham, in the end. No, no, I don't. I don't even know what. Like they went bust, right, and then had yeah. to give the rights back. I think did, yeah. the, the puppets. Did they have the puppets in the US? Oh, Taylor? they had the puppets in the US. Yes, they yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, that was the Shut up, was... Vidich. Yes, I will forever remember <laughs> angry Jose Mourinho puppet. So, Taylor, technology has obviously played a part in the growth of soccer on TV in the US. You mentioned TiVo and the like, but I happen to believe that. NBC Sports are responsible yeah. in large part for the growth yep. of the game just because they've done excellent coverage and ubiquitous coverage. And Dude, yeah. I think they've they've really, really helped. Is it fair to say that they've caused a sea change in the way the game is viewed in the country? Absolutely. And I, and I think it's easy to forget what it used to be because it's so easy to find everything now that now we complain when like, oh, the stream was five seconds delayed. Whereas I remember that first season of NBC and like, like Total Soccer Show was, was happening at that time. That was when we had like our four co-hosts. And I remember us all sitting down and being like, oh my, like there's a highlights package where you can just watch the highlights of every single game. Like it wasn't quite match of the day. I remember Daryl explaining to us what match of the day was and how <laughs> mythical and incredible that sounded. And NBC sort of started their own version of that. It wasn't quite match of the day, but you'd get a lot of highlights and a little bit of analysis and that didn't exist before NBC took over and obviously Ted Lasso and the sort of awareness building campaign I think they they really hit the nail on the head with the way they went about sort of generating that interest and creating that idea that like it's 
it's a sport, but it's not what you're used to, but it can be fun. And and then I think they just do such a good job of presenting it and making it interesting but informing. And And I really, really, really love that they did not – like dumb it down. They didn't try to appeal to a broad American audience by making mm. it into, uh, you know, Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith screaming at each other. It, like I, I think they picked a, a smart original host in Kyle Martino. I think Tim uh, Howard has done a good job stepping in, but the two Robbies are great. And then I've said before, I will forever say Rebecca Lowe. I think is one of the best, if not the best, at what she does. And just having this sort of calm, enlightened conversation about football in between games was just not a thing we got in this country until that moment. And I do think NBC getting the rights is like maybe a top three moment in the spread of soccer in the country. Yeah. One, one of the things I find really interesting about the NBC coverage, so that, that deal got, you referenced it at the top of the show, Ryan, $2.7 billion. That, that got renewed in November. And the interesting thing about that was it was reported at the time that the Premier League had rejected higher offers from other broadcasters because they thought NBC, the way that they package that product and the way that they present it, it does a better, they do a better job of, of, of presenting the Premier League than any other broadcaster. And that's interesting to me because it shows the Premier League doesn't just see these deals for the revenue. Obviously, th- that's a large part of it. 2.7 billion is, is a huge amount of money and that's beneficial to the clubs. But they also, they also see it as a means to position the brand and the clubs as brands as well. And, and so it, there's, there's more going on than just yeah. an exchange of money and revenue and how NBC has kind of unlocked that for the Premier League in, in the US. I just, I find all that stuff really interesting. Damn. Man, that's a really fascinating point because you're absolutely right. To your point about Satanta, for example, if they had given it to like like Turner over here with the Champions League and, and they don't love the way that contract works, they wanted it to be a much longer deal and they realize the way the renewal process works, they're just like, yeah, you know what? We're not going to do it again. And if you had like if that's the way Turner want to go, so be it. But if you had NBC not win the bid and instead you give it to somebody else who just decides, yeah, you know what? This isn't for us or we're not going to give it the billing it deserves – like the Premier League is such a dominant global brand now, and it probably would be anyway, but I do wonder if that sets them back in this country, if they had gambled wrong and gone with somebody who didn't present it right or put it on at weird hours or didn't give it the promotion it deserved or the coverage it, it needed. It, it makes a huge difference. That's a really good point. Credit to the Premier League for going with NBC. Credit to the Premier League, that bastion of virtue that it is. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's not great. <laughs> while we're on that kind of subject, we could talk, perhaps we could talk about globalization and its role in soccer, Graham. And, oh you know, uh, when you talk about World Cup broadcasts or, you know, even Premier League broadcasts, they're covered in advertising, they're covered in sponsorship. And they go hand in hand, don't they? These big companies, uh, virtuous or otherwise wanting their brand put on the biggest sport in the world that has gone hand in hand with the growth of tv uh, and the growth of broadcast soccer on tv yeah absolutely it might, it might be stating the obvious slightly but you look at the the growth of um let's take the premier league again because they're the most lucrative league in the world and they maybe have used tv better than any other league in the world you look at the the sponsorship deals that Chelsea and Manchester United and Liverpool and Arsenal, all the shirt sponsorship deals, the sleeve sponsorship deals. I don't know if there's a Premier League to have short sponsorship. I don't think they actually do yet, but leagues around the world do yeah. have short sponsorship. EFL those, does. Yeah, so exactly. So they those uh, those deals have been inflated by the extra visibility that comes through, uh, you know, 
audiences in China or Japan or in Brazil or in the US being able to to see those teams more regularly. Obviously, the more eyeballs that are on those those teams and those brands, then the the more that those numbers are are going to be inflated. And I think the the growth of of soccer in a number of markets, just generally talking about the growth of soccer, not just the 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 growth of the sponsorship deals, can largely be attributed to the number of matches on TV in 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 the country. We talk about the US. I think it's undeniably tv has been a factor in that you look at countries like like china and japan that i mentioned there that's been a factor and you and leagues like la liga in particular they're scheduling matches for prime time in china and asia it was a bit of a cause a bit of controversy a few years ago when they played a classical in fact they did it for a number of seasons oh, maybe yeah. three seasons they mm. were playing classicals at 4 p.m local time um, which isn't a traditional time at all for such a big match in Spain. That match would either be played on a Saturday or, or, or a, a Sunday evening. Certainly in the summer months when it's warm, they'd play that really late at night, 9pm local time, sometimes even later. But they were playing them at 4pm to capitalise on the, the Asian market, the Chinese market in particular. They were opening an office, I think, in Beijing. I think La Liga has an office in uh, New York as well. I know the Bundesliga certainly has a an office in New York. So all these things are tied in with the, the TV deals. I think La Liga has a, a new ESP, ESPN deal, which is much inflated on what they had before, $1.4 billion with ESPN until 2029. For context, the Bundesliga is getting just $41 million a season from its US TV deal, which is way less than La Liga. And leagues, if, if they don't keep up, they're at risk of, of being left behind these foreign uh, tv deals are becoming increasingly important as everyone tries to keep up with the premier league which may be impossible but they're trying to get as close to them as as they can so absolutely the the globalization of the sport has really just accelerated through television reaching every corner of the globe yeah um taylor when when we look at the way the sport has changed with with tv it also has physically changed the 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 way we play the sport and by that i mean if you look at gridiron football and the way it's basically a game designed for TV and TV aids it and, you know, the lines on the field for downs and so on. That has sort of permeated its way into soccer as well. And if you look at something like VAR, that's yep. a development due to TV. Yeah, I mean, I think and, and the the consternation around we have the ability to freeze frame and know if that person was offside, to know if this infraction occurred why aren't we using it and i mean for the longest time the nfl didn't have that either i remember when they first brought in challenges and how revolutionary that was that you could challenge a, a call on the field and and t- totally change the game and and then that led to the conversation not led directly but in my mind they're linked that then you have that in other sports why not have it in soccer and now we do and it does make a massive difference it changes the way it's played it changes the way we watch and the way people celebrate but yeah i think there's there's elements like that that are factored into the way like TV changes the way it's played. I think also it changes the way it's played from a viewing perspective because I grew up hearing that Americans don't watch enough soccer. And that wasn't just like they're not sitting in front of the TV. I think my coaches would argue that we weren't going to enough games and we weren't seeing what happens on the pitch from a sort of holistic view. When you're watching on TV, you're only seeing what they're showing you. You're only seeing where the ball is and that sort of tight space but you're not seeing how teams adjust their formation or when players advance up the pitch and other people cover for them and i think in some ways tv is really useful in that you like if you have a tactics cam you can do that and obviously just being able to watch the game like puts you in a position that other people weren't in 20 years ago but at the same time it, it's such a night and day thing to be in person and watch a player making runs and seeing how they're getting open and how they're finding space versus 
with a television broadcast, you aren't quite as able to do that. And I think it makes it sometimes I think there becomes an assumption that that's just an easy thing. That's just a thing that players can do. And I think it sort of removes some of the appreciation of the spatial awareness talent that players Mm. can have. I think, Taylor, literally TV has changed the way I watch soccer because when I go to watch a game live now, I can't stand behind the goal. I don't like doing it as much because I need to have that TV sideline view. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I I do love that when uh, ESPN, usually for World Cups and major competitions, has, uh, when you're streaming, the tactics cam. And it is awesome to watch a game from the usual camera angle on one screen and then have the tactics cam below that, usually because the tactics cam is like 30 seconds behind. So you can watch a goal and then look down and see like how they adjusted their shape or where people were on the pitch. Mm. I like it. For that reason, but also, yeah, if you're right behind the goal, maybe you're not getting quite as good of a view, but you are getting some net in your vision, so that's nice. Indeed. Net in your vision, always wonderful. (laughs) Uh, Graham, uh, one last uh, sort of question to ask on this episode, Mm -hmm. and it's about the future. Um, We've heard a lot about, you know, some of the biggest names in soccer talking about maybe making games (laughs) shorter. The European Super League threatened to uh, change the the way we see um, the game. I mean, essentially where we're at, Graham, is that to big clubs and to big leagues, the TV viewer is more important than the season ticket holder, the person who rocks up to the stadium um, for many, many reasons. But that is the state of affairs, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that has been the the case for, for a while now, but it, it really feels like with globalization and um, the US is becoming, the US in particular, I think, is, is becoming this mainstream market for... Uh, Europe's biggest clubs and, and and the Premier League, so they're they're just they're tapping into bigger markets that is dwarfing the number of people that they will have in in their stadium. So yeah, they're increasingly thinking of of TV audiences, and it does feel like broadcast habits um, to kind of shift the discussion forward slightly to the future. We we are at a little bit of a, a juncture where things are changing in in broadcasting. So I I personally feel like in the states a lot of the change has already happened. So you guys have streaming services like ESPN Plus and Paramount Plus and HBO Max. I, I saw they're involved in the in the latest uh, US soccer deal, um, national team yeah. deal, TV deal. They, you know, streaming services in the states are absorbing a lot of live sports rights, um, including soccer rights. In the UK, we've we've kind of yet to we've yet to reach that moment. Amazon Prime have a have a package of two rounds of fixtures per, se- per season, but the the Premier League handed th- them those rights very much as an experiment. That contract is up soon. The current contract with BT and Sky and Amazon is up soon, so I'll be very interested to see what happens. DAZN have been linked. Uh, Discovery have been linked recently. Are they going to do... It feels like surely there will be more packages created for streaming services, and then mm-hmm. does the 3pm blackout get ditched? Obviously, during the pandemic, it was ditched the blackouts so that was maybe a hint of things to things to come um but then there's also questions of are younger people watching less live soccer do we need to package this in a slightly different way there is actually data out there that shows that that younger people are watching uh less live sports in general than than older people 18 to 34 that a lot of the numbers are down but then i would argue that these changes are are more likely down to where young fans can actually access live soccer and i think that's the real issue for the premier league and all and mls and uh la liga and bundesliga and all these leagues is how how do they put 
the the game in front of younger fans it's more accessible it's not so much I, I think younger fans have a shorter attention attention span or anything like that you hear a lot of that nonsense I'm not entirely sure that's that's true I think it's more about where those rights are placed and um, making it more accessible maybe putting it on streaming services where you aren't tied into a contract like you are with Sky or some of the the cable providers in the US maybe that'll make a difference um, I don't know but I think we're going to see some some more experimentation in the years to come Taylor, do you think the young people with their Pac-Man video games and their rock and suck and robots going <laughs> to be influencing the way the game changes in the future? Maybe yeah. different ways we view it, maybe even changing the rules. So, you know, 60-minute games could be a thing. I, I think it's possible because I, I, I do think that there is something... Man, I'm going to sound really old. I feel uncomfortable. Uh, I think there's something to be said for If you have to work to find a thing, it creates... A scarcity, but there's also that demand that it creates a community. I remember going to like one of the three sports bars in town that had soccer at like 8 a.m. that would open up for it and you would find the same people there and it sort of grew this bond and it made it feel like you had to seek it out so then you would enjoy it more. And I will say that as it's become just easier and easier and it's on demand, like I personally will will not watch soccer the way I used to because I know I can catch it all that night or the next day. And I think when you have so many things at literally at the tip of your fingers when you can watch any movie or any tv show it's just there's there's less of an of an immediacy to it and i think there's less of a we're all collectively watching this thing and that's why major tournaments i think are the like exception to that rule i put the champions league in that as well i think there are still certain sporting events and football events that that do sort of become appointment television. But I think as leagues want to keep people interested, and especially younger people who maybe are interested in other things and don't have an hour and a half to sit down and, and watch a game, maybe they will, there will be some adjustments to the way co- or like the coverage itself will change a little bit to try to reflect that. I think it's, it's really interesting to see how changing demographics change the way we talk about football. Because it's even interesting to me the way the Premier League has this global brand and this sort of it's seen as the most, in my mind at least, I think to a lot of Americans, it's the most cosmopolitan league where they're spending money and you have owners from all over the place and coaches from all over the place and, and world-class athletes everywhere in a country that, like, you know, voted to leave the EU. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not as though England historically has been this, like, bastion of... Like, I don't I don't know, multiculturalism and intellectualism, not trying to throw shade at England. I promise I'm not. It's just it's a weird thing to think about how the Premier League is perceived in relation to like the current political situation in England. It, it just it's an odd thing that it's become this huge globally recognized brand, whereas I think there's other leagues that are as or more stable that could supplant them down the road someday. It is huge, Taylor. And we have TV to thank. For yeah. that, make sure, just like Homer Simpson, you hug and kiss your TV at night yep. before you go to bed. That's my advice to you. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for joining us in this conversation about TV helping to grow soccer. Twere my pleasure. And one quick plug for if people want to hear more about the Premier League, how it broke away, how it came to be. Uh, there is a Soccer 101 episode about that. I forget the number, but if you scroll down far enough, you will find it. You will indeed. Graham Rusband, thank you very much sir, for your contribs here. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Always a pleasure. Indeed. And listener, thank you so much. Plenty of soccer ones in the feed for you to check out, and there'll be more coming along shortly. But for now, goodbye.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.